The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Would you pray with me, Ecclesia? Creator God, we're grateful to be in this space to worship you and to seek your face, God, in this company of people who are also seeking you. And Lord, we would ask that you would continue to open our eyes to your work in the world or your work in us and around us and through us. And God, that you would shape us to become genuine reflections of who you are and how you are moving through the world, Lord, and that we would willingly and joyfully, enthusiastically join with you in your preferred future for all creation. And so, Lord, we ask this morning for boldness as we step into each new day as your people. And toward that end, God, I pray that you pour through me the gift of teaching, that everything said here be because of you and drawing us towards you and from you. And may we leave here, God, a transformed people because we have had a genuine encounter with your Holy Spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, it is, uh, it's good to be back on the west side. Uh, I love coming out here. You guys have it, you have it so good out here. I keep trying to get my, my daughters to come out here with me, and, like, I can't even bribe them with free breakfast tacos. Like, downtown, like, you have to pay for all that stuff. I keep saying, it's free. Come with me. And they're like, no, we, we want to sleep. So uh, they get to sleep a little bit later, but I'm glad to be back out here. We should get together more often. If you've been around Ecclesia for the last several months, there are a couple of things that you probably couldn't have missed. I mean, you would have had to work really hard to miss these two things. The first one is that we have been in a teaching series this year about the Exodus, the story of the Exodus. And the second thing that you couldn't have missed is that it is baseball season. And I want to spend a little bit of time this morning talking to you about both of those things, Exodus and baseball. Like many of you, I grew up playing baseball, played baseball through high school, and it was kind of a cornerstone of our lives together. But I found out something reading an article a couple of weeks ago that I didn't realize of all the thousands and thousands of players who have played professional baseball in the United States, Major League Baseball, that of the thousands of players, only 31 have had more than a than 3,000 hits. Only 31. Uh, And of those um, 31, only two are still playing. Uh, And there there might be someone else joined the 3,000 hit club before the end of this week. Um, Depends on what Albert Pujols does this week, but he could join the 3,000 hit club. So there will be three major leaguers who are still playing. Uh, The other one is Adrian Beltre, who plays for the Texas Rangers. And a couple of weeks ago, when they were in town playing the Astros, he got a hit in the top of the fifth, which sparked a comeback. The Astros ended up losing that game. I know because I was there and I saw the whole thing go down. (laughs) And the other, the third is this guy, Ichiro Suzuki. Um, Ichiro has been playing baseball a very long time. Just to give you an idea about how long he's been playing baseball, this next fall, when this baseball season will still be going on, my oldest daughter will start high school. Ichiro started playing. When Ichiro started playing, I was in high school. That's a long time to play baseball. And the fascinating thing about Ichiro 
is that baseball is his entire life, his entire reason for living. And it started when he was a kid. So when he was a boy, his dad bound his right arm, tied his right arm to his body so that he'd be forced to become left-hand dominant. So he would bat and throw left-handed. And Ichiro's hitting, this is why he has um, over 3,000 hits. Uh, He actually has over 4,000 hits. Uh, Is because baseball is his obsession. So a teammate tells a story about a day they had a day off in New York City. And so this teammate figures, this is a great time. I'll fly my wife up and we'll have a good time in New York. We'll just go around and enjoy the city. And they are walking through Central Park in the middle of the afternoon. And he hears the crack of a bat over and over and over again. And he knows just from the sound that this isn't just some kids playing or a softball game. That He can hear in the sound that it's someone who knows what they're doing. It's kind of if you've ever been to a sporting event and you hear or see the gap between like when a regular person does something and when a professional athlete does something, like there's just no matter how fit you are, like a professional athlete is just like at the next level and he hears this and he knows that this is a professional and he goes to kind of find out what's going on and it's Ichiro in Central Park on a day off taking batting practice. And Ichiro's like that about everything. When he first broke into the major leagues at Seattle, the first day of the season, he came into the locker room and a couple of his bats had been moved. They said probably about six inches. And he just throws a fit, goes to the manager. There's a problem. Someone's been going through my locker. And it turns out that the equipment manager had just moved it a little bit so he could put his uniform in there. And he threw such a massive fit, they decided that from now on when he shows up, we're just going to hand him his uniform and just be done with it. We're not going through that again. And so even in the off-season, he rents out a ballpark in Japan where he's from, and he plays, he practices every day with the same group of people, eats the same thing every day, has the same routine every day. Every night before he goes to bed, Ichiro practices his batting swing in his bedroom for 10 minutes before going to bed, which I think I would find a little scary. And his wife says that when he's in a hitting slump, that multiple times she's woken up in the middle of the night to find him crying in his sleep. That there there are times where he'll get up from anywhere between one in the morning and four in the morning and just in their bedroom, just practice his swing over and over and over again. Like he's obsessed with baseball. Some of his friends, some of his former teammates, say that Ichiro is a prisoner to baseball. So much so that he carries his, his bats around the world in a custom-made humidor to keep moisture from getting into his bats. So uh, one of our good Ecclesians, a guy named Brett Marshall, played with Ichiro uh, at, at the Yankees, and he said, that's true about the humidor. That's 100% true. He's totally like that. And he said, you've got to see this humidor because he's got all of his bats in there and it's sealed all the time and just bla- emblazoned across the top, it just says, Ichiro. <laughs> and Ichiro travels with his own personal trainer and not only his own personal trainer, but his own set of weights and workout equipment wherever he goes. So whatever locker room they're in, they have to clear out other workout equipment just to put Ichiro stuff in. And so when Ichiro got his 4,000th hit, Brett was telling me that he gave everyone on the team a custom-made bat when Ichiro got his 4,000th hit. 
And on each bat, it just says, Ichiro. <laughs> so he's been playing baseball a long time. I mean, from the time I was in high school till the time my daughter is entering high school. And so when you've been doing anything that long, particularly athletics, where the body can only do so much, the, the legs only have so much in them, the back, the muscles only have so much in them, people began to ask him about retirement and what he's going to do after he retires. Like, he just signed on with a major league team. Like, just a few days before this last season started, they didn't know if he was going to make it back to the major leagues. And so people have asked him, what are you going to do when you retire? And when they asked him this last year, he said, well, I guess when I retire, I'll just go someplace and die. He is a prisoner to baseball. And Ichiro doesn't keep playing baseball because he needs to make more money or because he's not yet a shoe-in for the Hall of Fame because he is. Ichiro keeps playing baseball because he doesn't know what else to do. He's stuck. He doesn't know how to move forward. And you can see why when you've done the same thing over and over for all of your life, you know this is predictable. This is stable. I know this world. I'll just keep doing this. And when, when that's over, I just don't know what else to do. Which is why we need to talk about Exodus. Because that's where we find the Israelites right now. If you know the Exodus story, you know that God sees his people, the Israelites, enslaved in Egypt, and he taps Moses on the shoulder and says, Moses, I want you to go over there, and I want you to free my people. And Moses does that, and through a series of plagues and these mighty acts of God, uh, the Israelites are freed, and they cross the sea, and they're out in the wilderness, and they've got to learn this new God and what this new God wants because no, they don't know who that is. And th this guy Moses shows up, and all they know about Moses is that he grew up in the Pharaoh's house, and then he killed a guard and went and lived on the lamb for a few years and then came back and said, go with me. And if you've been a slave, and the option is being a slave or heading out, heading out seems like a pretty good thing. And so they've just been out there in the wilderness, but now they come to a place where they're on the precipice. They're about to enter into the promised land, this land that God had said that he would give them. And I'm just going to stop and fix this because it's driving me nuts. This is what happens when you have the oddest shaped ears in the history of the world, which I will blame on my mother. Um, they're on the precipice of going into the promised land. And so far, things have been really good because God's done all of this stuff. Like when you see the plagues, when you see the sea part and all of that, you say, well, I'm going to go with them. But now they've got, they've got some agency now in what they want to do. And they're encamped at this place called Kadesh Barnea. And it occurs to me, reading through the Exodus story, that over and over in life, there are these key moments where we also have to decide if we're going to move forward. And everybody that you've ever known carries around with them this box of hopes, dreams, and expectations. 
And sometimes they just stay in that box and sometimes we act on them. But everybody wants something. All of us at some point have said that we want something to be better. We want to move forward. And it's different at different seasons and different times and for different people. So maybe for you, like you're at a place in your career where you're looking around. You said, I know what I've done, but I want to do something else. I feel this nudge, this impulse from God to move forward in a certain way. Or maybe it's with your spouse, your husband, your wife. And you, you know what your relationship is like but you know that there's something else, there could be more, and you want to you move forward. Maybe it's with your kids, where you've, all, you've got an idea of what kind of parent you want to be and what kind of home you want to create, how you want all of that to work. Maybe you see some injustice in the world, some place where you can be helpful. Maybe you've come to a place in your career where, where it's time for you to do not just the thing that blesses you and your family, but the thing that's really going to get the ball rolling for a lot of other people. Everybody comes to these points where we want to move forward. And what we tell ourselves is that we want to move forward. But what we find is that we often don't. And I, I don't have to tell you that because everyone here has the resume of their life. You know your own timeline, your own plot, and you know that there have been times in your life where you thought, yeah, I'm going to really do this. I'm going to move forward. I'm going to move into the next phase, and you don't. Because more times than not, we don't actually make commitments to move forward. More times than not, what we do is we make a decision to try until it gets hard. Like, I, I, I want to get out of debt. Yeah, that's what we're going to do. I'm going to get out of debt. And then we try until it gets hard. Well, I, I want to do this for a living, so I've got to go back to school, and I've got to get this degree, or I've got to get this credentialing, and I need to have this happen. And we try until it gets hard. I don't want to interact with my spouse this way. There's way too much tension. There's things that are going on that we, neither one of us like. And we're going we're gonna to get to work and make this thing happen, and we try until it gets hard. We make decisions to try until it gets hard. And that's what keeps us from moving forward. And what the Israelites are going to find out at this, at this crucial juncture in their story is that anything worth doing, anything worth having, any relationship worth pursuing, that everything eventually gets hard. If it's worth having, if it's worth doing, everything gets hard. And so they're at this place where they get to make a decision if they're going to move forward or not. And here's how that story begins in Numbers 13. The Eternal One spoke to Moses. said, send men who can spy out the Canaanite land that I'm giving to the Israelites. Pick one man with demonstrated leadership from each of the tribal families. Moses did so. He sent the 12 heads of Israel out from Paran Wilderness Camp just as the Eternal told him. Moses sent this group to spy out the land. Moses says, trek through the Southland desert of Negev and up into the high country. I want you to tell us about the land and especially about its people. Are they strong or weak? Are there a lot of them or only a few? Do their cities have fortifications or are their camps open all around? Also, is the land itself good or bad? Its soil rich or poor? Are there any trees? Be bold 
and bring back samples of what grows there like their grapes. It was midsummer when you'd expect them to find grapes just beginning to ripen. So God, God tells Moses, you get together, you get together 12 guys, one from each tribe, someone who's really smart, really gifted guy, and we're going to send them in, and they're going to come back and tell us everything. And, and this is a wise move to make, because in your life, when you're looking at whatever's next for you in the next season of life, it is a wise decision to figure out what's ahead of you, what's this going to look like, what's the terrain ahead. And this is why Jesus comes along later, and he says, like, no, no one builds a tower, and no king goes off to war without first counting the cost. Figure out what this is going to look like. Like you don't want to be naive about life. You don't want to be naive about what's ahead of you. So in so many ways, this makes a ton of sense. Know what's coming. But in so many ways, it's an odd thing to say. Because God has already told them that he's going to give them the land. Like that's already done. That's already settled. And for you, as you're looking at what comes next as you move forward in life, like there is nothing that you will encounter as you experience and nurture this nudge, this impulse from the Holy Spirit to move forward. There's nothing that you will encounter that God doesn't know about yet. It's not like you've got to come back and you say, well, God, I know that you want me to do this thing, but I looked into it and there's going to be some really tough parts. God knows that already. And so just at the beginning, as you begin to lean into that, then lean into the next season of life, one of the things that you need to know is whatever it is that is ahead of you, that God knows that already. Like, like your report will not inform God of anything that he doesn't already know, and he's not already told you. Because God has already told them, this is the land that I'm going to give you. But it's on this trip, this reconnaissance trip, that's when the Israelites begin to understand that moving forward, it's not going to be as easy as we thought. This is what happens next. After 40 days, they returned from exploring to the camp at Kadesh in the Paran wilderness and went directly to Moses and Aaron and all the Israelite congregation, which had gathered to hear what the scouts had learned and to see what fruits they had brought back with them. The scouts told Moses, we checked out the land just as you instructed us to do, and here's what we discovered. It is rich, very rich. One could say that it flows with milk and honey. And look, here are some of its fruit. The land is highly desirable, but the people who already live there are really strong. Their cities are enormous and fortified. What's more, we saw the Anakites there. In the Negev, there are Amalekites, and in the high hill country are Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites. As for the seacoast, Canaanites live there, and along the Jordan River too. But Caleb calmed the congregation, and he spoke to Moses. We should go straight in right away and take it over. We are surely able. And the other scouts replied, no way. We can't do it. The people who are already there are too strong for us. So the report of these other scouts was quite disheartening. It made the people question God's promise. The land that we surveyed virtually eats its own, and the people themselves are gigantic. And so we begin to see why moving forward can be so difficult. And maybe for you, the reason that you feel stuck, maybe the reason you are stuck, 
is for you, maybe for all of us, is we just see our obstacles as too big. The spies go out, and when they come back, what do they talk about? They talk about what they saw. And that's most of the way that we function. We, we live life basically evaluating everything by what we see. Because all of us have believed deeply in this little piece of wisdom that is so popular that we forget that it's faithless. And that little piece of wisdom is this, that seeing is believing. That almost everyone that you've ever encountered in life really believes that seeing is believing. But that's not the testimony of Scripture. And so when we start out to do something different, we tell ourselves, well, I just want to be realistic. And we look at everything and we describe it by the way we see it. And so often realistic is just our big word for excuses. And I'm one of those people who really believes in reality. As a matter of fact, I think one of my callings in life is to help people see the world in reality, to be realistic, to not be naive about what life is. But reality isn't often what we call reality. Because what we call reality is what we see. And reality isn't what we see. It's not the world according to how we see it. Reality is the world according to how God sees it. And we have forgotten at a fundamental level, because it is so ubiquitous, we believe that seeing is believing, but that's not what the Scriptures teach. The Scriptures teach us that faith comes from hearing. And these ten spies who come back they base their entire report on what they have seen, and they have already forgotten what God said. And in my life and in your life, the obstacles are always going to be more visible than the promise. And if you are waiting to get started until you see, you will never get started. Because there will always be obstacles. So I made a new friend the last month. Uh, his name is Randy Butler. And Randy was an attorney here in town and he's a national and international mediator now. And when we met, he had, he had read my book, and uh, we began this conversation. And it turns out we just had all of these random and odd connections. He went to high school with my wife's uncle. Uh, he went to college with Chris's dad. Uh, we just had a lot of the same friends. And uh, he had this prompting that God wanted him to do something different with his life. Because as an attorney, as he met with people and dealt with people, he noticed that in our country and around the world, when there was tension between people, that folks either got litigious or violent. And he really believed that there had to be a more gospel-centered way to handle problems in the world. And so he felt like God was really calling him to, to leave the practice of law the way he had always done it and become a mediator. But he had what all of us had. Like he had kids to put through school and a mortgage and responsibilities. And so he, he told God, he said, okay, God, I'm going to do this up in two years. Give me two years because I've got all of these other obstacles that I've got to take care of before I get to that point. You know, all those things that when you're young and you pray for and you wake up one day and you go, oh, man, I've got to take care of all this stuff now. 
And so Randy one day was at MD Anderson, and he, he was leaving the hospital because he had seen a client of his who was a patient at the time, and he was carjacked. But he wasn't carjacked in the way that you want to be carjacked if you have to be carjacked. Like, if you have to be carjacked, you want someone to say, get out of your car, and you get out, and they take the car, and all you lose is the car. And this guy gets in the car with Randy and puts a gun into his ribs and says, drive. And one thing turns into another, and it turns out the perpetrator gets caught, and, and Randy is set free, and he's unharmed. And he has this realization as he's driving back home to the woodlands that afternoon. He says, what makes me think that I have two years? Like, we are so good at naming and knowing our obstacles. And it keeps us from moving forward. But the truth is, like, you will always have obstacles. There will always be a challenge. And you don't know whether or not right now is the only now to fulfill your purposes, the purpose for which God created you. You might not have later or another time. And there will always be obstacles. I know some of you remember the book, The Last Lecture by Randy Pausch, who died um, after he gave the lecture, and he was talking about the nature of obstacles. And he said, the truth about life is this, that the obstacles exist to determine how badly you want it. And there will always be obstacles. And I know that our nature is to think that if we could only see if we could only see what God was going to do, what God was planning, if God would uh, make himself visible or, or remove the scales from our eyes, then we'd, we'd just move forward boldly. But that's not the case because as the Israelites are coming out of Egypt, God gives them a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night for the express purpose that they never have to stop moving forward. They can march all day and they can march all night. And he is there in their midst leading them and they can see him every day, but it doesn't help. Because there will always be obstacles. And the call of God is to move forward in faith because what you see isn't going to be helpful. And the story continues. The scouts say the land we surveyed virtually eats its own and the people themselves are gigantic. We saw the massive Anakites who descended from the ancient Nephilim. We look like grasshoppers compared to them, and they know it. So not only do we see ourselves, our obstacles, as too big, often we just see ourselves as too small. The spies come back and they say, we look like grasshoppers. Well, who told you that? They don't come back and say, the Amalekites and the Anakites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, they told us that we look like grasshoppers. That's the story that they are telling themselves about themselves. And we live in a world where there is a very real problem of too many people thinking too highly of themselves, but we also live in a world where there is a serious danger of too many of us thinking too lowly of ourselves. And like the Israelites, every one of us right now is telling ourselves a story about ourselves. 
How many times this week did you beat yourself up because you just can't seem to get it together? Or that you're too fat or too skinny? That you're not smart enough or pretty enough or strong enough? That everybody else seems to have it all together? That you're the worst parent, you're the worst grandparent in the world? Everybody else seems to be able to get their financial house in order, but you just can't. How many times this week have you determined that you're just a grasshopper and you've told it to yourself so many times that you start to believe that that's what other people are saying about you too? It's so easy to forget what the scriptures say about you. That you are made in the image of God. That you are fearfully and wonderfully made. That you are the crown of God's creation. That you are lovable and wonderful. And for some of us, maybe in this season of life, the best spiritual discipline that we could practice is to speak to ourselves like we would speak to someone that we cared about. That we would stop being the first to announce the negative news about ourselves. So often, it's not that we don't believe in God. The problem keeping us from moving forward is that we don't believe in us. We look like grasshoppers. In the community, the Israelites respond just as you would think they would respond to news like that. At this, everyone with one voice cried out, and the people groaned and wept all night. Blaming Aaron and Moses, they said, if we only had just died in Egypt or somewhere along the way in this wilderness, rather than the eternal one leading us out here to have us slaughtered and our women and our youngsters dragged off as plunder too, as objects for their pleasure, wouldn't it be good just to go back to Egypt? Let's figure out among ourselves who should head the group and then make our way back to Egypt. So here's the thing about life. You can write this down. This is really important. There's always someone who wants to go back to Egypt. And the worst thing for your life is for that someone to be you. Because one, one of the problems we have with moving forward is that for too many of us, we just see our past as predictive. That, that we were slaves, we were just kind of born in this state, and that's where we're going to stay, and there's nothing else ahead of us. So when we come up against obstacles, when things get hard, when the commitment breaks down, and we said, oh, I made this decision, but I'm not really going to stick with it, let's just go back to the way things always were. And, and so I, I'm, a, I'm a student of history. I read a lot of history. I love history. So I'm going to tell you something about history. It's really important that you should know about history. Do you know what history is? Information. History only has the power that you give it. And so every day when you wake up, you have a choice. You can live life 
through the windshield or the rearview mirror. And the rearview mirror is really helpful. Like you need a rearview mirror to get through life. But you can't make any journey that way. And if you live life through the rearview mirror instead of the windshield, you will find yourself colliding into more and more things all the time, and eventually you will tell yourself that you can't drive. The rearview mirror is helpful. But the only direction that you could go is forward. One of my favorite philosophers is Soren Kierkegaard. He was a Danish philosopher. And he said that life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. But there's good news. Because when you get past the size of the obstacles and the size of yourself and and living in the past, the scriptures do offer you something beautiful and holy. This is what happens next. While all the gathered Israelites watched, Moses and Aaron collapsed to the ground before the people. Joshua and Caleb lamented the Israelites' response. These two, who were among those who journeyed into the promised land to explore and bring back a report, tore their clothes and addressed the whole community of Israelites. The land we saw was extraordinary. It's some of the best land ever, flowing with milk and honey. So stop this moaning and wailing. If we all do what is right in the eyes of God, the Eternal will bring us into the land and make it ours. Do not rebel like this against the Eternal. Don't be afraid of the land's inhabitants. It is we who will devour them. They are now defenseless, and nothing can protect them from the Eternal who is with us. You don't need to be afraid. So you've probably heard if you just watch the Ten Commandments or anything like that about this land that God has promised that is flowing with milk and honey. One of my favorite translations of this passage says that God has provided us a land that is exceedingly good. And let me just ask you, what would your life look like? In what ways would you move forward with your finances, with your marriage, with your kids, with those, those things that are most important to you? What would you do if you believe that God was going to give you something exceedingly good? That God wanted to give you something exceedingly good. And if you're like me, you want to push back on this passage and you want to say, in this world you will have trouble and there will be wars and rumors of war and all of that. And I I know the Bible says all of that, but you know what else it says? That God is good and wants to give you something exceedingly good. And the problem for the Israelites is that they are at a camp called Kadesh. And Kadesh is just a Hebrew word. It means oasis. And if you've been wandering around the desert for a few years and you finally land at an oasis, you might be tempted to tell yourself, you know where I am? Where I am is good enough. That we can just settle right here. 
This is good enough. But God never promised you, God never promised me good enough. God promises us exceedingly good. And maybe for you, it is time to step forward. And in God's praise and glory, say that good enough is not good enough because God has promised me exceedingly good. All I have to do is trust in that promise. And what would it look like for you if you were to join David, who in the pit of his life in Psalm 27 were were to declare that I believe that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Or if you were to join with the Apostle Paul, who says that in Christ Jesus, all the promises of God are answered, yes. Because God is a promise maker, and God is a promise keeper. And our job is just to trust in the promise. Because God came to Abraham and he made him a promise that he would make him a great nation and through him that the whole world would be blessed. And we have been blessed. The world has been blessed through Jesus Christ, who on the night that he was betrayed took bread and broke it and said, this is my body given for you, broken for you. And after the meal, poured the wine and said, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this wine, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Through Jesus, God has provided and will provide for all of us who are living and will never stop living a life that is exceedingly good. Let me pray for us. God, help us step into your goodness and to trust it and to trust that you are loving us and working for our behalf. And God, give us confidence to move into the areas that you have called us to, knowing that you will meet us there, that you will guide us, and that all of the obstacles are defenseless against you. May we walk with you the way Jesus walked with you, that led him to ultimate exaltation. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.